0: Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for survivors and victims of crime sponsored through the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I'm Anna Nassett and I will be your host for this bi-monthly podcast and show. Today on the show, we have Keisha Rahm here to discuss the power of storytelling and how it can be used to heal and empower. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Anna.
0: This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concept for victims of crime. We wanted to acknowledge the healing process and provide resources not only in our state, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As your host, I myself am a victim and survivor of crime, and my healing process and how I navigate through the world is an ongoing and ever-evolving process. I went for years from hiding myself in my trauma to standing up and speaking out against crime and now travel to speak with victim and service providers. I'll share some of the services and resources that I've learned over the years and also learn about many others with my guests. I, as always, like to offer a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, we occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health or other sensitive matters. We urge you to care for yourself as you listen and listen at your own discretion. As I said, today we have the incredible Keisha Rahm on the show. Keisha has served four terms in the Vermont House of Representatives on behalf of Burlington from 2008 to 2016. She graduated from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in 2018 with a Master's in Public Administration and is currently engaged in policy consulting. She has worked for the City of Burlington as a Civic Engagement Specialist and for Steps to End Domestic Violence as the Legal Advocacy Director. She also serves on the board of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and Vermont Natural Resources Council. Beyond Keisha's growing list of accomplishments, she is also an incredible storyteller. Uh, We met a few weeks ago at uh, an event for the Vermont Network for Sexual and Domestic Violence, where we both shared the stage telling stories. And I'm just so excited to have one of my, like, top guests that I have wanted to have on. Oh <laughs> I'm very honored <laughs> and thrilled to have you here on mm-hmm. The Mend as we talk about the topic of storytelling. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And I'd love to start by just you telling us a little bit about your up- upbringing and how it led to your life of public service.
1: Well, first of all, thanks so much, Anna. I don't know how I could repay that kind introduction, and I'm so glad that the Vermont Network did bring us into relationship more formally, uh, because I really enjoyed hearing your story and knowing about your bravery, so thank you. Thank you. Um, I uh, I ha- always had this complicated upbringing, and it really felt like running for office helped me have to get it out quickly. And I distinctly remember being at uh, a democratic Labor Day type of event where the focus was Really, you know, people were in the audience having a good time. You had to get up and give a rabble rousing speech, and I was after Attorney General T.J. Donovan and Senator Patrick Leahy, and they were really talking up their Irish credibility, and um, it was it it just was that kind of Barry Labor Hall environment where you wanted to, mm-hmm. to talk about how Irish Catholic you were, and I got up and I. Really quickly had to say, well, I'm not Irish Catholic, but I did grow up in my Indian immigrant father and Jewish American mother's Irish pub in Los Angeles, and the crowd pretty much lost it. I had never tried to explain my childhood that quickly, and I really, you know, it was a really healing experience actually for me to run for statewide office because it was right after my father died, and uh, you know, without trying to. Um, use running for office as therapy, it still was really valuable to figure out how to tell my story, who I was, where my beliefs came from, uh, by, you know, reflecting on who my father was, who my mother is, and what they've given me in my upbringing. Um, I really, truly did grow up in an Irish pub in Los Angeles, and uh, it was our family business. Um, but the harder part of the story to talk about is that at some point, my mother really uh, started to realize that this relationship was abusive, controlling, and one where uh, she wasn't being appreciated for what she contributed. She had two master's degrees. Uh, One was an MBA, and she did all the the books and the accounting for the business. My father never really appreciated that um, and was becoming more uh, physically and emotionally and verbally abusive, and uh, she left him. The business started to fall apart without her. Uh, she became a single mom with three kids, and even with two master's degrees, couldn't really find work uh, that was flexible enough to, to manage everything. And so, you know, I really had this complicated childhood where we experienced great wealth during the heyday of the pub. We had Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, we had a number of big Santa Monica and Los Angeles type important people. Um, And then, you know, there we were sort of my mother having boyfriends where she would say, oh, I, you know, forgot my wallet. Um, Do you have $20 I can use for groceries? And that would be our groceries for the week. So, you know, it was a really complicated childhood that doesn't lend itself well to talking about all that complexity um, (coughs) when you're running for office or you're not trying to tell a story geared towards um, the ups and downs of, of life. Wow. Thank you for
0: sharing that.
1: Yeah.
0: And thank you for, I think it's really important when you embrace everything that has shaped you as you walk into this public space. And it's interesting, my own father passed away, and that's what led to me being a public speaker.
1: Mm, Wow. So
0: I can definitely resonate with that. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Well,
1: thank you for sharing that. I'm
0: sorry about your father. Same with you. Yeah. Um, So can you share with our listeners how storytelling has folded into your life? and your career and has aided in your expressing the wins and the losses and the grief and, and Absolutely.
1: everything. Absolutely. Yeah, I really look back at even that period of time and much later in life and think about how afraid my mother was to tell that story, any part of that story, whether it was the abuse, which she still doesn't talk about, or, you know, seeing me talk about the financial stress and challenges, uh, she has a lot of pride and pride. I had to let go of that to get help in life in a lot of ways. Um, you know, she was the kind of woman who was very independent and said, "I want you to follow your dreams and go to college, but I don't have any money." Um, and you know, so so knowing that if you were a free lunch kid meant that you could take the SATs for free, and you know, could uh, would mean that your college applications are free or low cost was really important, but we weren't free lunch kids. She would scrape it together and she served on our local food co-op board. So we had lunches, but I said, mom, I'm going to go on the free lunch program. And actually the food's pretty good. And this is going to be part of my story. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is going to help me get to college. And so later on in life, talking about being financially insecure was important to me to break that stigma for others. Um, and to make sure they knew that, as much as uh, it's it's hard it's difficult it's very vulnerable to talk about who you are uh, it can open some doors. At the same time being a policymaker, we shouldn't always force people to divulge every detail of their life to get help right um, It can be a great connector but it can also be, you know, in, incredibly voyeuristic to have to know that somebody's a worthy victim to get support or, you know, they've done everything right to get financial assistance from, assistance from the government. So I always try to be judicious about telling my story and make sure people understood that uh, some people aren't going to advocate for themselves the way we think they should in order to access uh, government services. And we always have to be cognizant of that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I get emails all the time from other victims who just like, how have you done this? I'm like, I have advocated for myself so hard mm-hmm. and that's not what everyone can do. Exactly. And that's okay. However, however you choose to navigate that and however you choose to share. And yeah, I mean, it took me seven and a half years to be able to tell my story Absolutely. and just the, the coming to terms with that yeah. and realizing that in some ways it doesn't define us, it shaped us, but so much more as we move into our future
1: exactly and i remember growing up trying to explain to people oh my parents got divorced because of cultural differences because he's indian and she's jewish and that was too hard to to work out they came from different cultures and that's a disservice to indian culture you know it's not full of people who are controlling and angry all the time and yelling all the time and i had to learn that as i grew up and learn a new way to talk about a very uncomfortable Part of my life, and I would, you know, I just commend your bravery because it took me becoming the legal advocacy director at Steps to End Domestic Violence to learn how hard it is uh, for women and victims who haven't experienced physical violence because that's still what society honors and recognizes. And to Mm -hmm. have women, especially women, but all kinds of survivors say, I wish he would just punch me in the face because that's the only way I'm going to get help was so jarring for me and such an education in what. That emotional and verbal um, and financial abuse looks like that can surround a, a victim and survivor um, without them being able to, to get help. From absolutely,
0: the absolutely, yeah. And we need more people that are going to stand up and stand beside victims who aren't having that physical done to them and it is it's how we it's how you're able to articulate and tell your story as you're trying to get these services
1: absolutely um yeah absolutely i remember uh one experience when i was approached first through a male ally who was helping a small group of women um, who were trying to see if they could get anywhere addressing revenge porn in the Mm -hmm. state of vermont the idea that you might have explicit images or videos of you doctored or real that either you didn't know were being taken or you didn't want to be shared with a larger audience. Um, And that might be held against you by an abusive partner or someone that you've had an intimate relationship with or anybody really who, you know. Um, And these women, you know, really came to me to talk about how it was hurting their reputations, their careers to be victims of revenge porn. Um, and I worked with Representative Maxine Grad, your local awesome. wonderful representative on this issue. Uh, I, f- I first of all remember when I was on the Vermont Digger article about it and there was my picture, all of a sudden I had this terrorizing fear of, oh, my goodness, they, there's people who do this work nationally who don't even publish their, their contact information because of how harassing uh, men can be around this. Thankfully, I didn't experience that, but I had this moment of terror of just, what does that feel like to be a victim of this kind of horrible crime that isn't a crime in many states? So we passed the bill, and uh, when we had a signing of the bill at Hope Works, the person, one of the people who uh, came to me with her initial issue and the experience she was having was there, and I I really was hoping we could celebrate her, and she didn't want that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it was a important moment to think about how she wanted to kind of celebrate by being peripheral to that event and watching it happen. Um, and so afterwards, the governor gave me the pen for signing the bill, and I privately gave it to her. Um, and I just really honor, we, we often really want people to have to tell their stories publicly to get likes on Facebook and sympathy and pats on the back and, you know, to help the next generation. There's a lot of noble reasons to tell your story, but it also can be really noble um, to honor yourself and to not tell your story if that's not what you want to do.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think, I know for myself and telling my story when I go out, it's really, before I ever started doing that on like a public forum was, really had to check myself of like, why am I doing this? Mm. What is the motivation? Because yeah. somebody had told me, you'd be great at, you'd be great at public speaking and, and telling your story. And I was like, well, what's what's the reason behind this right. and for me it's in service to others exactly. and like that's my driving force and everything I do is that this is in service to others so that others can benefit and get the same resources that I have gotten because that's what everyone deserves mm-hmm. um, but definitely had to really gauge that and look at my own safety within that of exactly. uh, going okay well if this man gets out of prison my website shuts down. Everything shuts down. Right. I might be right. changing my name.
1: Exactly. Wow. But
0: um, you know, luckily I have ten years to to wait for that. But, um, yeah. but yeah, there is you know those things of looking at your own safety within that too. Exactly.
1: So. And and for people who may not have had the the opportunity, which is a great one, to hear from Tarana Burke, the woman who started the Me Too movement. Um, you know, we sometimes. We don't know exactly where those words came from, and we just say, yeah, me too, you know. Um, that's so empowering. But it really, she tells this incredible and poignant story about be, working with young girls, uh, and a young girl coming to her and talking to her, opening up to her about sexual abuse, and her having such a hard time saying me too, and wondering where that comes from inside to not be able to get those words out. Mm-hmm. And I I, really love in this very sad way that deeper understanding of what the Me Too movement really grew out of, which is how many forces in society keep us from being able to say Me Too and tell our own story. And that's why I I just hope people look up to Ronna Burke and and understand where the Me Too movement really originated.
0: I got to hear her tell that story two years ago, and I, yeah, was in an audience of, like, 2,000 people, and I, like, found my front row seat. I was like, I am right here. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes. I sobbed through the whole thing just about. But, yeah, she's an incredible storyteller and speaker. And, yeah, I mean, it does – that's the other side of it is I have women all the time. They're like, I didn't want to post me Mm to. I didn't want my children to know. I didn't want – my husband to know. I didn't want my friends to know. Yeah, and,
1: and that stigma yeah. we carry. It can yeah. really erode us.
0: But it's okay to have that quietness Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So as you've moved through, um, I know that you faced a lot of hurdles growing up um, as well as in your career. And oh. um, how has, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> just a few. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fair assessment. Um, as much as you'd like to share, how has storytelling helped you heal and continue to move forward into the work that you're doing now and into what you kind of are dreaming your life into becoming
1: yeah that's a great question because it, it feels so rich to reflect back and think about those hurdles and many of them had to do with being a very young woman of color running for office in Vermont that is not uh, you know a common sight here still and uh, I you know I was uh, the first um, woman of color to represent Burlington in the legislature. I was the first woman of color to get double digits in a statewide race. Um, And that didn't come without a cost of people constantly saying, don't play the race card, don't play the gender card. Uh, At one point, a good friend and campaigner said, my dad called you a jigaboo. And I don't even know what that means. And it took me a second of sort of being startled to say, I have to reach back like you know, almost 100 years for, for right. remembering when that was a slur. Um, but, you know, those kinds of experiences are hard to talk about in Vermont still. And when, especially when women of color are leading and they are around the country, people go directly to calling them names that have to do with their gender and their race. And when you combine that, it's an incredibly oppressive force. Mm-hmm. And it really throws you off your game, even if you're doing your best to lead and you know, it did. It was a lot of time in Vermont when people said, "It can't be that bad," or you know, "This must be um, a very isolated incident," or you know, "You just shouldn't talk about it because it's not, it it's not positive." People don't want to hear about these things. You know, in a way, perhaps due to the Trump administration and just things—the the sheen coming off of, of what American race relations look like at this point and how much progress we think we've made and the realities that we're facing now, a lot more people in Vermont are willing to have this conversation and to say, I have made assumptions or I have not challenged assumptions. And that may have led to who is successful in this state or who has access to power or you know how people are seen as professional or successful. And so uh, now I'm just having all of those conversations with municipal government, the towns in our state, and school districts, and organizations that are all on this journey. And over time, I hope they can more and more be in relationship with each other around shared learning. But it's such a rich time um, where you have towns all over the state who say, we want to create a diversity statement or a welcoming positive statement. And then they step back and say, what does that mean? <laughs> what happens when we have we got that in some place? problems here? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I what I hope it it isn't is a time where people think, well, I just won't say anything because I feel shut down or I feel like I might have offended somebody. Um, what we need is people to really think and process out loud to the best of their ability, um, so we can work through these issues together. Because nobody has all the answers, but we're only going to find them if we speak together about how. What that looks like is a lot of violence that people have experienced, a lot of hostility in their life, and a lot of setbacks um, from a system that was rigged against them from a very long time ago. And I think Vermont's always felt like, you know, we never had that problem. We abolished slavery a long time ago. Um, But we're now having a reckoning. We're having a civil rights movement now um, because we're becoming a more diverse state. And I'm just really happy to be able to be, hopefully, a cultural broker or a bridge or somebody who can... Um, help both sides come together in that case. That's so awesome. That's thank incredible. You.
0: And you, know, <laughs> you and I were talking beforehand just, you know, all of these injustices and things that have happened in our past have shaped us and now allowed us to dream into a future where we get to use them for good. Yeah. And we get to hopefully see change. And it's not easy. And I just have such admiration for you. Oh, and, thank
1: you. Yeah. Right absolutely. back to you. I, I do think, I mean, it, as hard as it is, it's really easy. It looks easy for an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or a woman who's made it somewhere where no one can take that power away from her to say, S- keep speaking up, even if people tell you to wait your turn. Um, it, it might look easy, but it's incredibly difficult what any mm-hmm. woman, particularly women or a person of color, does on any given day to keep speaking up. And so I, our, my hope is, and I love that you have this show, just to keep giving people that hope that if I... Um, can tell one person or a number of people what I'm experiencing and help make sense of it, um, then I can make a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're two examples of that. So. i like to think so. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so my guest today is Keisha Rahm, and we are talking about the power of storytelling. Keisha, can you share with our listeners how storytelling has helped you in your various campaigns, mm. and for others who might be seeking to run for office, how... That can be a real tool of power. I think yes. you gave a great example with the um, town hall that you were talking about, Labor Day. Exactly, yeah, that's yeah. A great example. Um, but yeah, if you could just kind of further expand upon that.
1: Well, I it, it's a great question because it helps people. I talk about it all the time when young people are thinking about running for office. It can be really daunting and. To be fair, you know, you don't know everything there is to know about tax policy and healthcare, And you may know less than a person you're running against or somebody else who wants a position who is older than you and has paid taxes longer. But nobody can claim to have the absolute knowledge and experience it takes to run for office and to serve in office. And so the best thing you can do when you're hit with a hard question or you're in a debate and you're asked something where you don't feel like you know all the answers and all the solutions um, right away is to talk about your personal story and start from there. And that was something no one could take away from me. I challenged two male incumbents. The first thing they said about me in the press was in the local school newspaper. They said, I'd be curious to know what she thinks she brings to the table. And it could have really knocked me off my block. And I could have said, I don't know what I bring to the, I mean, I've been student body president and I teach preschool locally. And I think I have a lot of things I bring to the table, which I articulated. But Um, At the end of the day, if someone asked a question about some really detailed housing policy in the state house, and I was passionate about housing, but I hadn't gotten there yet, you know, I could still talk about how I would be the only renter to serve in in the legislative body. Um, And, you know, pivot back to, I don't know if I have all the answers right now, but I have a life experience that's valid and relevant. And, frankly, the legislature is not very diverse in terms of people's life horizons. Mm -hmm. You know, are they right now facing the crises that younger generations are face, facing of student debt, you know, trying to afford a home, trying to figure out what their financial footing's gonna look like, it looks very different. And so we keep saying we want more young people, where are the young people well, you need to feel like you have something to offer when you run and what you have to offer is your personal experience. So start with your story and you You often can't go wrong. And start with the stories of the people who you talk to at the door. You know, I was running for office without health care. It was pre-ACA. Yeah. And, you know, my mother's health care policy kicked off anyone over the age of 18 in the family. So there I was, you know, 21, knocking on doors, afraid. What if I cross the street and I get hit by a car? I don't have health insurance. And then I talked to my neighbors who, you know, Had multiple sclerosis and had to choose between, you know, food and prescription drugs, or somebody whose brother got in a car accident and didn't know how they were going to pay the medical bills. And I realized my struggle is not different than my neighbors, and I'm Mm -hmm. just going to promise them to take their story to Montpelier and do something about it. And that I can do, even if I can't, you know, solve all their problems right away. So the power of story is incredibly real, and it helped connect me with neighbors who. you know, otherwise we might not have a whole lot in common or agree on a whole yeah. lot of things, but we could, you know, share stories, and that made a difference.
0: And that's so powerful because in their story, even if they're not telling it, they know that it, it matters. Exactly. Like that's an incredibly powerful thing for everyone who's being – who's voting.
1: Exactly. <coughs> I um, one – just one story. I know I'm telling lots of stories, but it's kind of how I think and talk – Um, I knocked on the the door of one woman who someone had said, oh, somewhere in that neighborhood there's a woman who's really, really, um, you know, pro-life and doesn't support abortion and you might want to be thinking about how you talk to her if you knock on her door. So I knock on somebody's door. I had no idea at the time that that's who I was talking to and she invited me into her house and we were starting to have a cup of tea and, you know, she was uh, very uh, opposed to abortion. She made clear and she started asking me my thoughts on it. And I realized who this was, and I thought, oh, maybe we could agree on, uh, you know, re- uh, reducing teen pregnancies, or maybe we could agree on trying to get people better healthcare services so they don't have to make that choice in the future. And mm-hmm. um, no, we couldn't agree on any of that. And so I'm sitting there sipping tea and just saying, well, we may not agree, but I'll be here to listen to you. I can tell you that much. And she kind of takes a deep breath and looks at me and says, Do you like opera? And I said, yes, I do. I sing soprano one, and we found a way to talk about opera and relate on that front. And she said, okay, you have my vote. <laughs> and you know that's amazing. <laughs> we, that was it. I mean, she wasn't going to get somebody who who aligned with her political views in Burlington, Vermont, necessarily. Um, thankfully, I, in my mind, we're a very pro-choice state. But you know, she, we could find something where we could stay in conversation, and sometimes that's all that matters. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much to the power of listening and the fact that we can always find something to connect on. Exactly. And especially in this culture where we're always looking for the things we can argue on when we can find those connections. It's so important. And I know for me, I'm Absolutely. from Ohio, from a very, very conservative state, from a very conservative family. And yet we, we, we just listen and we yeah. share and we connect and we might vote completely differently, but that's OK, because we still
1: connect. Exactly. Yeah. I, I was just talking to somebody uh, today who said that her son, who's in elementary school, witnessed a screaming match between a young boy who was saying a lot of things that were being perceived as racist on the playground and a young boy who was screaming in his face, that's racist, that's racist. You shouldn't say those things, that's racist. And she was trying to talk to her son about what to do in that situation. And what was interesting as she described the situation, she said the boy who kept saying things that were being perceived as racist was saying, well, is this racist? And is this racist? And what about this? And it was kind of in a taunting way. But I pointed out to her, you know, actually, he sounds like the only one who was asking any questions. And, you know, I'm not defending what he was saying. It could have really hurt some people, but um, it sounded also like he was really crying out for some attention and and had some other things going on. But what would have been different if the other boys weren't screaming at him, you're racist, but were asking, why do you feel that way? What, you know, why why do you think that? What makes you, you know, think it's okay to say that if it hurts people? Do you Mm -hmm. know you're hurting people? Being a little more curious about each other, uh, could go a long way right now because otherwise, I said that screaming match sounds exactly like what's happening in the country. Yes, <laughs> we're just absolutely. not listening to each other. We're just screaming at each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's we we feel uncomfortable to ask questions. We're embarrassed or all those things. But it's like if we ask questions, we can all learn.
1: Exactly. Yeah, a little compassion and curiosity can go a long way right
0: now. Yes, for sure. Um, with that, my, how do you kind of envision? A better future moving forward kind of mm. coming off of a story like that where both of our everyone's stories are shared and how we can make a lasting difference in our communities by listening and communicating our stories
1: that's a great question because I am a little bit old-fashioned about social media I think it has immense power as a tool mm-hmm. and I think more and more people are turning to video and ways to get out more content rather than one tweet that has however many characters I've lost track because Twitter is not my favorite platform. Um, But, you know, I do think that people are hungry for the handwritten letter and the storytelling forum, you know, much like what we were involved in, they want to hear each other and experience each other face to face and in um, an intimate setting. And, you know, I think the more we can instill that that joy, curiosity, love of humanity in our kids, the better, um, mm-hmm. because they're starting to lead really isolated lives. For us, it was like instant messenger and being able to be really mean to each other on instant messenger because you're behind a computer screen, right. and now kids face you know, really harsh realities of what is okay to say, frankly, in the public sphere and how to navigate that. Um, I think helping young people really still have those personal interactions is going to be really critical to the to our humanity moving forward. I hate to sound, you know, really down on um, on new forms of communication because they're really exciting and I think they have a role to play, but. Um, certainly while recognizing that nothing can take the place of, you know, physical touch of, I I always say, you know, when when people ask me, um, what happens if you lose your race when I was such a young person running? I said, what other college graduate do you know has knocked on every single one of their neighbor's doors, looked in their eyes, heard their hopes and dreams? I'm really fortunate regardless of whether or not I win this election, I'll do something valuable with this. And, you know, that is a, a powerful gift that, you know, we have to stay hungry for. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: You're a collector of stories as well oh, yes. as an orator <laughs> of them. Um, so we've talked a lot about stories today and the power of them. And one thing that I thought would be fun and a little bit different than what I usually do is if we had Keisha tell a story today. And I know she had a few she was choosing I know, from. Right. So I'm just going <laughs> to let her do whatever she wants and just share A short story with us for a few minutes.
1: Well, thank you. And if you've heard Anna tell a story, it has this beautiful way of arcing that I'm still working on because my stories um, come fast and furious and passionately. But, you know, I I have given some thought to this story and I've told it before because it really honors for me so much of what we've been talking about. um, And that is, you know, the power of what our ancestors have given us and the stories that they've given us, even if they didn't have to say any words, um, my grandmother was a really important figure in my life. Uh, my dadiji—that's how you uh, speak of your father's mother in in Hindi—and uh, she likes to say that I waited for her when I was born because she flew from India to move to live with us and move in with us the day before I was born, and then I arrived and. I was the youngest of three, so she really took me under her wing. I became hers, really, (laughs) her charge. And uh, she was really intent on teaching me cursive, and I would take dictation on her front porch. Um, She lived in the backyard in a guest house. Uh, By the time I was two, we were working on cursive and reading and writing. And so this felt a little bit like uh, abuse and torture. It was not. I am not a victim of that kind of crime. My my grandmother's a lovely woman, um, but it was really intense, <laughs> it, it was hard. And, and at the same time, it made me so much of the person I am today, the person who's really comfortable speaking and telling stories and articulating and, and um, speaking up for myself. And so when she passed away in 2010, it was really hard for me to sort of make sense of all of it and find a sign that I could move forward. She was such an important, influential person in my life. We went to India as is customary to bring her ashes to the Holy River, um, which our family has done for thousands of years in Hardwar. And that was a beautiful ceremony, but it didn't give me the closure I needed. And my father was with us at the time, it would be five years before he passed away and we did the same thing for him. Um, And he took us to the part of India that they had spent their final years in India before moving to the United States. And that was a very complicated thing because my father And uh, his family were refugees from the part of India that became Pakistan. My grandmother always talked about how they lost all of their wealth and left with the clothes on their backs and fled to the other part of Punjab. Um, And so we saw the last house that they lived in before they left. And it was this horrible little cement block painted a million times with really clashing colors. And I thought, I'm never going to find the closure I need from seeing this, this small cement, modest cement house in the dusty road. And then um, we met these uh, caretakers for the school next door. It was a woman and her five-year-old daughter, and they didn't speak any English. And my father and my aunt were helping to translate as they talked about the property to the best of their ability. And so there, my aunt and father were trying to tell stories about my grandmother and my grandfather and and their life there. And finally, my aunt said, looked up and saw these beautiful, glossy mango trees. And they didn't, they weren't uh, giving fruit at that point, but they had beautiful leaves. You could tell they were incredibly healthy. And my aunt said, your grandmother planted those mango trees. I remember that. And she talked about how my grandmother would get on the bus she never learned to drive as customary for older Indian women she would get on the bus and drive all over the region to find the best mango saplings and everyone in the family thought she was crazy and my grandfather would yell at her you're spending all this time on the bus and who knows where you're going and it's dangerous to get the best mango saplings like is this really that important And she then translated that story for the caretaker and her daughter, and their eyes got really wide. And the caretaker explained that when the trees are bearing mango fruit, it is the most abundant tree in the entire region. And all the kids at the school gorge themselves on the mangoes and it like feeds everybody, and they're just the best mango trees (laughs) in the whole region. And you know, of course, my aunt and uncle, uh, my aunt and father were getting a really good. Uh, laugh out of that and, and it, it helped them I think a lot too but I really came to realize that that in many ways I was another one of my grandmother's mango trees that people might have thought you're spending too much time in fact you're suffocating this, this small living creature um, but it really spoke to that idea that uh, the meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you never sit or mango trees you know that you'll never eat the fruit of. And um, it really, really helped me to sort of picture my grandmother um, doing things that were inexplicable to everybody else that had such a lasting legacy and to know that I'm included in that.
0: That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing. For those who aren't watching or listening, I'm getting a little teary-eyed over here. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. And it was really nice just to sit and listen, too.
1: Thank you for think, asking.
0: Yeah, I think there's something there's such a power to just sitting and listening mm. and just being able to just intently listen and not respond mm. when somebody is sharing. So thank you for giving me the gift of listening to you. Yeah,
1: it it might be a little hard to do that on TV, but you were yes. doing so great I forgot I was on TV. So
0: thank you. Absolutely. Um, Keisha, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And as we wrap up this episode, is there anything you would like to share
1: that we haven't covered? Mm, I mean the word namaste means the light in me honors the sacred light in you. And I really just feel so blessed that you gave me this time to explore story and my story and your story. And uh, I just hope for anyone at home, it gave you a little more courage, even if it's to yourself, telling your story, developing your narrative, because it shapes so much of your outlook and your ability to put one foot in front of the other every day.
0: I love that. Thank you. Namaste to you. Thank you. Um, Thank you again for being here today. It has been such an honor to have you on the mend and discuss the healing and empowering practices of storytelling. Um, It is a subject near and dear to my heart, as you know, and I've loved creating this episode with you. I am excited to watch your journey continue to unfold (laughs) and stand with you in solidarity in whatever you do. Thank you. I always like to close with a positive message that you want to, like, just a little final statement. I mean, I think you kind of did that, Mm, but just
1: a little sentence
0: or something like that to listeners who are victims, survivors,
1: providers. Yes. One of my mantras is is. A sort of uh, not any Krishnamurti quote which is it is no measure of health to adjust to a profoundly sick society. Um, it's no measure of health to adjust to a profoundly sick society. So I don't want to say that's a positive thing but I just want to say for everyone struggling with our current reality or the things you're going through you know you don't have to adapt um, in order to be a successful healthy human. You have to get through it and find the safety and support and health that you need um, so don't bend to the will of others um, when you feel like there's a path forward that's uniquely your own. Thank you. That's a oh. very
0: good closing <laughs> message. <laughs> <laughs> so that does it for this week, my friends. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the work that Keisha Ram is doing, you can look her up on Facebook. So that's probably the best way. Um, and her name Very is spelled K-E-S-H-A, <laughs> and her last name is Ram, R-A-M. Okay. So thank you so much. And also for others who are listening, if you want to hear more storytelling, a great resource I think is The Moth, uh, which is a podcast. And um, you can look up events in their er- your area or listen to them uh, on the podcast. Uh, as usual, if you have any questions for me, please feel free to reach out. You can find me at Anna at StandUpResources.com. I'm your host, Anna Nasset, and it's been an honor to share with you this week. Thank you so much for joining me on The Mend.